Hello, I'm Dan Gropper, Dean of the Florida Atlantic University College of Business. We are very fortunate to have distinguished economist with us who has been a guest of the Phil Smith Center of Free Enterprise and the Young Americas Foundation. And he's been talking to our students and our faculty and some of our business community. And it's been just an absolute wonderful day. And uh, I want to welcome to the Dean's Podcast, Dr. Arthur Laffer. Dr. Laffer, great to have you here. Thank you very much. It's really a pleasure to be here with you. Great. Well, one of the things I want to ask, you've had a great career as an academic, and you've published influential research articles in the very top academic journals and over 20-some books. Um, But you've also moved in and out of the political arena as an economic advisor to leaders in this country and in other countries around the world. So you've mixed a fabulous academic career with a political advisor career, and I should say in this country to both Democrats and Republicans, but always trying to promote prosperity and an opportunity-oriented society. Um, Can you share your thoughts about moving back and forth from the academy into the political advising arena and sort of the best and worst of of each of those? I probably could do the best and the worst. I'm not sure I'm going to, but, but, but politics is where the rubber hits the road. I mean, in an academic environment, you've got models and all this stuff, and you do all this research, and you teach the students the effects and all that, but you've got to literally put it to use, and putting it to use is going into politics. And, you know, the first thing I was, it's that George Schultz asked me to be the first chief economist at the Office of Management and Budget when it was formed in 1970. And the uh, first thing I did was even before I got my office there, I went with him and John Ehrlichman in Air Force Two. Uh, from Andrews Air Force Base to uh, Narita in Japan, did it with a Kaidena Ren. Then I went down to uh, Hong Kong and got briefed on China. I was the staffer in charge of mainland China, the whole thing with Nixon. And then I went to Vietnam with them as well. And so I was in charge of the domestic economy of Vietnam from the White House standpoint. So this is before I even sat in my office. And, you know, I would, that was called a pushing into the fire, just throwing me into it. I found out that the academics, the economics, if used correctly, really works. It really helps a lot. Understanding how to frame a question, how to look at it, how to picture an issue, it really is very helpful. Hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. And we were uh, talking a little bit earlier, uh, you and one of my old professors from graduate school, Dr. Jim Gortney, both have been involved in advising governments about the way to sort of set up the institutions to help create prosperity for the greatest number of people in a free enterprise economy. And so those include things like the rule of law, sound money, uh, low taxes, a stable system of property rights so that people can produce and trade. Um, And you talked about that today. Can you just briefly kind of run through those kind of some of those key frameworks? Sure. What you started at was, it was really as you start at the North Star. And everyone knows that the North Star is not going to be implemented perfectly or in any way. But what you then do is come down from there and try to put it into real world things. Now, what I tried to describe today, and this is what we did in Chile in 1976-77. I was down there in 73 with my students at the Institute of Economics there in the Universidad Católica. And then over in Argentina and all these, is how do you make it work? And what you want to have is a tax system that has the lowest possible rate on the broadest possible base that you can get politically. Because if you don't get something, you, you don't win. 
And then you want spending restraint, you want sound money, you want free trade, minimal regulations. Those are sort of the grand kingdoms of macroeconomics. Now, in some countries, uh, like when I was with Erdogan in Turkey and did that stuff, they privatized a lot of industries. They'd nationalize all these industries. I did that with uh, uh, Sir Keith Joseph, Joseph over in Britain with Lady Thatcher when they, they uh, privatized oil and coal and railroads and all of that and work. You know, how do you get from here to there, taking the principles, the concepts, and then making something that works? And and the making something that works is really the tough part, the thing you got to really make sure happens. Hmm. Yeah, I think that translating the abstract ideals from an academic side to what's practical in the political side uh, has got to be one of the great challenges. And also, of course, the stakes are much higher. And the enemies are much fiercer. I mean, you know, when you walk in there, I mean, with Thatcher, let's take, for example, there were a bunch of people that didn't want to have anything to do with me in any way, shape or form. How do I win them over if I can, if I can't win them over? How do I short circuit them? How do I get around? And how do I make sure that what I'm saying is better than what they're saying? I mean, you don't want to win if you've got a bad idea. Uh, and you've got to make sure at all times that you're willing to Give up and you're ready if the other guy's got some good points and stuff in there and you want to make it. But you always get those personality clashes and, you know, people really don't like you. Yeah, that's a really important point because sometimes, uh, at least what I've seen in, in some of the political battles, the the heat and the, the tendency to want to destroy uh, the people on the other side gets very, very intense. And instead of saying, hey, let's talk about these ideas, let's reach some sort of agreement, let's put together a bill that we all can vote for, yeah. that gets to be hard. It does. And, and, you know, and especially, I mean, they do take it very seriously and take it very hostily. And, uh, you know, sometimes you've got to literally win and defeat them. Or other times you just got to circumvent them. Or try, and, and sometimes you don't win. I mean, we didn't win in Cuba. I mean, I was with Jorge Mascanosa. And we had the plan for all the free Cuba. And one day, Jorge calls me in, and I guess I was just the other, any first time he had terminal cancer. And, you know, uh, I was on the board of Mostec and working with him in the Cuban American National Foundation. And I was the highest ranking Anglo. <laughs> I am Anglo, just so everyone knows. Uh, but, you know, doing that, and you lost. We, we didn't get Cuba because of that. Uh, and there are others we could have gotten. We I'm right now in the middle of one with. Uh, with Pakistan and uh, Imran Khan and Shautak Tareen and, and the others there that I love the names, Razaz Dawood. <laughs> well, what a cool name, Razaz Dawood. But I mean, but we're working to try to get it there now. When there's a language barrier and all that stuff, it makes it a lot easier. It makes it a lot easier. Oh yeah, they, they listen. They, for some reason, it's much easier for brothers to fight than it is for strangers to fight. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense to you, but... Economic economists really are awful with each other. It, it it's fascinating that you say that because I've I've observed that in the academy for a long time. Economists, especially if you get business school deans together, economists are generally found or quite often found uh, to be the most troublesome group of faculty, even though they are not even in the majority of many business schools. So they're way overrepresented among the troublesome folks, 
in comparison to their population in the general group of faculty. I resemble um, that remark. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's uh, it's always been it's always been fascinating to me about why that is. And there's actually a whole body of research about it, but that's for another conversation. Um, let me let me shift gears just a little bit. One of the key principles at the core of economics is that incentives matter. And if if our students learn nothing else from their principles of economics course, it should be that principle and then seeing how to apply it over and over. Having said that, you are perhaps best known in the public sphere for the Laffer curve relating tax rates to tax revenues. And there's a story about you jotting that out on a cocktail napkin uh, with President Reagan and some of his advisors. And I understand you're not so sure that story is exactly accurate. Can you touch on that for us a little bit? It was even before Reagan. It was 1974. It was Jerry Ford. Okay. Uh, His chief of staff, Don Rumsfeld, had come over. He was ambassador to NATO. He'd come back. I was in touch with Don every week, and he briefed him on the U.S., and when he came back over, he and I would have dinner every week, one night, and go through all this of just the two of us. And every, uh, I guess every three or four dinners, we'd invite a person to come with us. He he brought Dick Cheney in, who was his deputy. And Dick was my classmate at Yale and a great friend, good guy. And I would bring in Jude Winiski, who was the editorial writer for the Wall Street Journal. And we'd have it one time. And we were talking about the Whip Inflation Now program, which is uh, Jerry Ford's 5% tax surcharge of all the silly things. And I was trying to explain to him, I said that, you know, uh, with the 5% tax surcharge, you're not going to get 5% more revenue. You might get 4%, you might get 3%, you might get, you might even lose revenues, but you will not get 5%. What do you mean by that? Because all the budget processes were static at the time. Sure. I said, well, let me just show you with this. If you raise tax on this, you're going to shrink the base. And even though you may get 5% more on what you do, you know, on the tax base, the tax base is going to shrink. And through that curve. <laughs> now, everyone says that was the first time ever it was. It wasn't. I did it always in my classes. I, I'm taught math. And so I had this, you may know the Financial Analyst Journal gave me a lot of credit for my, uh, um, the ellipse paper which was a general equilibrium tax one. And I would always show a tax on capital and tax on labor, trade stuff, and then show how the revenues would come in. But if you raise a tax on capital, that would reduce the amount of capital, which would then lower the return to wages and blah, 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 blah. And so that's when I drew the curves just so they could see the math in numbers. And sure, we'd have an ISO revenue line that we'd do it and different tax rates on cap. And it was just sort of cool stuff. And But in the dinner... Just doing it in that curve. Wow. Hello. <laughs> I mean, they jumped out of their seats. And of course, once you, if you ever, have you ever told a joke that really goes over well? Not to that extent. No, but when you, when yeah, you tell sure. a joke that really goes, do you stop telling it? No. You tell it every time you get exactly. to anyone new. You tell it. And the Laffer curve, they were impressed. Therefore, I did it in every dinner probably in 1974 I had. So that would be probably 365 dinners. So did I do it in that napkin at that day and that time? How do I know? I mean, yeah. I was doing it all the time. Sure. Well, it seems a, stra- a fairly straightforward application of that that general principle that incentives matter and a tax elasticity and how much the base shrinks when you increase the rates. It's it, but to put it in that kind of a framework and have that kind of influence is is absolutely well, fascinating. At that time, no one, no one, no one was doing any estimates with any elasticities at all. 
Really? I don't know why, hmm. but I mean, everyone in price theory does. Mm-hmm. Everyone understands if you raise the price of a product, you know, you're going to get less sold. I mean, that's just obvious, but not in macro. In macro, all the budget stuff was done very simply that if you raise taxes by 10%, you're going to get 10% more revenue, period. And they still do that in the budget process. Right. They still do. I mean, look at this stuff in Britain right now with uh, with Liz Truss and Quasi Quartung and, and uh, Rishi uh, San, Sanak. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's just, it's, um, it's just tragic, the lack of comprehension. Because they try to think it through on a personal level and they just can't do it. Yeah. You need data. Well, and, and before I let the laugher curve go, don't I understand that at some point you took that way back to um, even some, wasn't it a Muslim or Hindu? Ibn Khaldun and the Mukadima. Yes. 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 Now, that was an article that was then written in, I forget what journal, but it was there when Ibn Khaldun, it was known, but someone wrote an article on Ibn Khaldun and the Mukadima. And, I think it was at the beginning of dynasties. I have to say it with dynasties, the British way. Nice. Uh, tax rates are low, but revenue's high. And at the end of dynasties, tax rates are high and revenue's low. And it, Yes, and then even Keynes, right? Keynes is the greatest quote ever. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, the, the, the history of that concept is well known. But of course, you know, to, to sit here and think, well, you've got the Laffer curve and everybody knows that. But let me just say, if I can, understanding the principle and having in a footnote of a paper that you then never use. Right. Okay. That is what they all say. Oh, but, but, but also this, but, and then they go through and estimate it all without that principle, even though they mentioned it in a footnote there, which is a typical economist way of doing things. And you know, when they get to the actual process of budget calculations, they never used it. And then they use those discussions to vote on legislation, which is crazy stuff. Yeah, that is. Well, it's absolutely fascinating. And I, to me, as, as someone who has stayed in the academy, uh, to see that sort of influence um, is, is really fascinating because we need good economic analysis, especially now. Because I'm afraid now, at this point in our economy, in our American history, there are economic policies put in place that the best thing I can say is that they can be reversed. That's the So truth. you set the stage for the next recovery with this downturn. The unfortunate thing, I think, and I'm editorializing here, uh, is that the restrictions that are being put in place can be a little bit hard to undo once they get institutionalized. Once the people are put in positions of power, once the regulations are established, it becomes much harder to get rid of them once they are put in place. Lest they overstep. If they overstep by a sufficient amount, you can reverse everything. Jimmy Carter way overstepped with his national energy plan, his hostility towards the capital gains tax, all of this stuff. And, you know, what happens is... The economists overstepped too. I mean, can you imagine, I mean, Janet Yellen really believing what she says? It's very hard to say that abortion is one of the major causes of economic slow growth. <laughs> Just, I mean, I, I've, I, I've been to a lot of some, no, I'm not saying abortion's right or wrong, and I'm not saying slow growth, but to link those two is just silly. Mm. Uh, these people, uh, when they take jobs with government officials, uh, they, they become different animals. They become employees. And then they, they will rebut arguments they know to be true 
in order to curry favor with their political benefactors. And unfortunately, a lot of these people do that. Republicans, Democrats, but Democrats really do it because Democratic presidents are much more activist and much more inter- interventionist than that. So somehow, can you imagine justifying in any way, shape, or form Bill Back better? You can't. There's not an economist that can do that. We just aren't trained that way. And we don't believe it. it's silly in the extreme, but there they go. Well, there, there's, uh, there's an interesting argument on all of that. I think just even the naming of political bills, whether it's Build Back Better or the Patriot Act or the Inflation Reduction Act, there's a marketing aspect because somebody wants to then say, well, you voted against the Inflation Reduction Act. Therefore, you must want more inflation. Yep. Right? You voted against the Patriot Act, so you must not be a patriot, right? So it can cut both ways. But it's, yeah, it's true. It's true. It cuts both ways. And the naming of the bills and actually what's in the bills, uh, all of that is true. And, and, uh, but again, there is no limit to the amount of hubris uh, a government economist is willing to go to be push-hugging to their employers. <laughs> I think uh, we probably ought to go back to having required reading of, of more Hayek in uh, undergraduate economics. I, uh, I look at that. If just reading a little bit of The Fatal Conceit, and we can all, even for those who haven't waded through that book, you. That's can so understand from the title, perhaps, what, what is included. The idea that someone can sit uh, in an agency and plan out what needs to be done. We see failure after failure of that in country after country, and yet the desire to have that power and make those decisions for people uh, seems overwhelming at times. Especially with these people who went into economics to advance their careers. You know, it's they, they took the economics not as something they loved and wanted to hug and wanted to nurture and wanted to study because it was Brilliant and one. I mean, the miracles of, of, of economics is how did all these things get here out of these little incentives? How does it happen that it's the miracle of the century? Milton Friedman's one on the pencil. Do you remember that? Yes. I mean, that's just amazing. Uh, and then to sit there and they think they have the ability to control that process to blah, 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 and then get mad and angry and want to punish people. You can't tax an economy into prosperity. It just doesn't happen. Never has worked. Nope. Nope. Well, it's, it, it is fascinating. And I think really smart people often think that just with a little better data or with faster computers or with better models or with artificial intelligence now, they're going to be able to plan the economy. And it just doesn't work because of the principles of human action and individual freedom. And the planners aren't as bright as the country. They don't have a chance when their incentives aren't matched. You know, it is amazing. You can take people who are not intelligent, blah, 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 all this stuff, and they can calculate grocery lists perfectly. You know, it, it, you know, you can take the brightest people in the world with bad incentives, and they turn out to be horrible. And you can take the dumbest people in the world with the correct incentive structure, and they turn out to be geniuses. Yep. Well, and the market economy tends to get rid of those people, whether they're geniuses or not, depending on how well they do. And if they manage to anticipate people's demands and produce efficiently, well, they make profits. And if they don't, they make losses. The problem, if you have a government that makes losses, it persists. Yeah, they just subsidize with your taxes. That's right. That's and their budget will be bigger next year because they just need more to get the job done correctly. But then, but then it hits a point. And that's when the flip occurs. Ah, 
Well, let's uh, let's hope you're correct. Um, I think one of the things I, I, I was impressed with your lecture today, and I really want to highlight, is a large part of your work in policy analysis has really been about creating an opportunity society where everyone can grow. People at the bottom of the income distribution uh, are of primary concern for you, taking those from underprivileged background and giving them the opportunity to get ahead. I guess this sort of fits into those principles that we talked about at the start about how to create an opportunity oriented society. Um, but can you briefly summarize, you know, what you'd recommend to a government official that was trying to create a society that led to greater opportunities for upward mobility? Yeah, I don't know what specific you're referring to, but I mean, the ones I did when I lived in the south side of Chicago uh, in the Jackson Park Highlands area there, and that's where some faculty, some of the medical school, I was the only person in economics there, but our neighborhood was 98% black. Uh, some of it was very poverty stricken. Some of it was not. I mean, I had some very wealthy black um, neighbors and stuff, but the neighborhood in general, and that's where I developed enterprise zones. How do you bring these people out? Uh, how do you give them the chance? You know, they're sitting there living, and the life they live is not good. The crime, and I mean, it just gets, and what I did was I did make the, the area tax-free zones, which I called enterprise zones. And then I finally went to Reagan and to Jack Kemp, who would then put them in. And, you know, that, but that's how you look there. You look today, the biggest problem is health care, I think. It's a huge portion. It's 20% of GDP. And yet it's the most opaque, unfree market system in the world. No one knows what the prices of the products are. No one knows whether the products are good or not, what the consequences are. Not even the doctors. What's a CAT scan cost? Well, in one hospital, in one day on five different on five different insurance plans, it'll cost five different prices, really cash prices, and they'll be a, they'll be spread by threefold. Hmm. And if you look at over distances, it's huge. With different hospitals, and so we need to have a system there where we have hospitals post their prices. This is what it costs for that. And you know, you can have a doctor charging some charge more than others. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But all visible for everyone to see and with all the known information as to what the consequences are, then you can make rational decisions. But yeah. with, without knowing the quantities and the prices, you can't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a really important reform. And I think the, I think that by itself will go a long way towards improving uh, the well, operation of healthcare. It'll increase life expectancy by four years if we've got it through hmm. or more. And it will reduce GDP, uh, reduce the uh, cost of healthcare by, by $3 trillion. Yeah. $2 trillion. I mean, it's just a huge amount of money and life expense. And what's not the pleasure of living longer right. and richer <laughs> and better? Um, l let me switch back a little bit because one of the things that you mentioned earlier today, I think for many of us, uh, you were best known as working with the Reagan administration, but you also worked with others, and you also worked with Democrats. Wow. So uh, tell us a little bit about, uh, I think you did with, you work with Jerry Brown quite a bit on some things. So, I did, and with, and, with, and with some of the others too. I mean, Gary Hart, I worked with Gary Hart. I worked with a lot of them, uh, and uh, I felt very good with Bill Bradley and Dick Gephardt. I worked with the Bradley Gephardt, you know, the bill there, and uh, I started my work in, in government in Washington with Nixon administration as George Shultz's right-hand person in the White House then when he was head of the OMB. And I was the chief economist at the OMB then. And uh, But I worked with Jerry Brown. I mean, uh, he's great. I mean, he, you know, we had all of these changes we made in, in California, Prop 13, 
which reduced property tax rates by 60%. And it led, he supported us very helpfully. Now, he didn't come out publicly for us, but he really made a difference. Uh, and then we got the GAN spending limit. Then we got some of these others. I did a proposition with Howard Jarvis, which we lost. We lost 45, 55 against us. And it was three months later that Jerry Brown put it through in legislation. We got rid of the inventory <laughs> tax. We indexed the personal income tax. You know, that, uh-huh. that was the one that lost. And then Jerry Brown put it through legislatively. So what's not to love? And I did his presidential races economics. There is 13% flat tax where we got rid of all federal taxes and had two flat rate taxes on business net sales or value added, if you prefer, from the first dollar to the last dollar at 13%, and personal unadjusted gross income with very few deductions, exemptions, exclusions. So let's, let me go to a final question, and we'll wrap up. Well, you've just published your latest book this fall, Taxes Have Consequences, an Income Tax History of the United States, with a couple of co-authors. What are some of the key points you would want readers to take away from this book? Yeah, the book's fun. It's got a lot of stories in it and a lot of things. It shows how people sheltered income and did all that. I, I find the politically most important issue there is on the top 1% and taxes on the rich. And, you know, we have all of the data there, every single tax return. This is not sampling or any of that stuff. And the IRS has them. And it's very clear whenever you raise taxes on the rich, the economy underperforms. Whenever you lower taxes on the rich, the economy outperforms, period. And you can just see that through the data. Number two, when you raise taxes on the rich, the rich do poorly. Uh, and they what they do earn, they shelter like mad. Uh, so they don't do well, but the poor also do poorly. So you don't have a model of taxing rich to help the poor. That's not the way it works. It's you tax the rich, you hurt the poor, you hurt the rich, and you hurt the poor too. The two move together, not against each other, the poor and the rich. And uh, also, when you raise taxes on the rich, tax revenues from the rich go down every single time. I mean, it's shocking. Um, and every time you uh, lower tax rates on the rich, they shelter their income less, they earn a lot more, the dividends, the capital gains, all of those come in, and they, they pay a lot more in taxes. So it's, now, that's obviously not true. The first year, when you went from zero to 7% in 1913, you collected more tax revenues from the rich. Okay, but any of the medium ranges in there, it's just the opposite. Raise taxes on the rich, you collect less money. Lower taxes on the rich, you collect more. Reagan, Kennedy, all of it worked, both every which direction. Yeah, across across administrations, Democrats, Republicans, it doesn't matter. And in states, the same thing. The lowest tax rate states have the most fiscally sound budgets. The highest tax rate states are squirrel bait. They don't do well. You want to be in Illinois? You want to be in New Jersey? What do you want already? You know, there you sit there and see these states and they can't run their finances. They have horrible situations in New York State. Oh, my goodness. Connecticut. Wow. I mean, and yet the states that are low taxes, like Florida, like Texas, like Cal- uh, like uh, Tennessee, like Nevada, some they do really well. They have their budgets in line and low taxes. You know, it's, it's really just amazing how, how consistent these data are cross-sectionally, time series, different countries, uh, different class. It's just amazing how the economy really works. As we said at the start, incentives matter. Thank you. And when you start taking part of people's production away, they're likely to produce something else like leisure time or non-taxed activities. They don't like you. Yeah, it's not. It doesn't you know, have to be. There's nothing cr- wrong with having rich people like the tax system. 
you know, rich people are part of this country. It's like a customer. You think of the government as sitting there looking at rich people. Rich people pay them money. Send them Christmas cards. Send them birthday cards. Be nice to them. Everyone knows they've got to pay their share of the rich one. But when they think you're exploiting, when they think you're coming after them, treating them unfairly, they'll fight back. And what you want to do is have a, have a voluntary tax system effectively. Now we need IRS to assure it and go through and check so people aren't silly. But a low-rate, broad-based flat tax, everyone thinks is right. If you make 10 times as much as I do, you should pay 10 times as much in taxes as I do. That's just your share of the government should be larger. And everyone knows that, but it shouldn't be 100%. And I shouldn't exploit you because you're better at doing something than I am. Well, one of the things that uh, I'm particularly proud of that we do well at Florida Atlantic University is promote an opportunity culture for our students, particularly our first-generation students. And when you have students that go to school and get a degree in accounting or engineering or whatever it might be, that makes a huge difference because then they enter the professions, they make money, they, they see how they can be part of the prosperity uh, that can exist in this country. And we've recently won some awards for our entrepreneurship research and our entrepreneurship co-curricular activities. And so there, that's what everybody thinks of is starting their own business. And for many students, that's great. That's the embodiment of the American dream. Think of me as making the sound of thumbs up for what you're doing. That uh, thumbs up all the way and just congratulations. Yeah, well, it's wonderful to see what you're doing. Well, it is so great to have you here to learn from you, to share this message of how we create a prosperous economy, share these lessons, and uh, share your experiences. So thank you very much for being here, for speaking with our students and our faculty and our business community, and uh, it's been a pleasure. I loved it. I've just loved it. I just love students and faculties more than anything. Thank you for having me. To learn more about the FAU College of Business, please visit business.fau.edu. Furthermore, you can follow me on Twitter at FAU Business Dean.